0: Feel like you gotta give us a little warning, you know, when you invite someone to speak and you have a time of singing like that, you gotta let us know so that we have time to recover before we stand here. What a blessing. You guys are blessed. You're blessed through worship and song and worship in the Word. And it's a privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter sixteen, a, a text that is very familiar to all of you, and I know that uh, you have focused on this topic uh, this year. I think every church is probably focused on this topic this year. And uh, the title of the sermon is "The Church." I Kept it very simple. And by way of introduction, I want to explain uh, part of why I have come to this text. Uh, each term, when we go for three years. Uh, We try to have a focus on that, which we believe God would have us do. And over the last three years, our focus was on the beginning of the church. So this actually doesn't have to do with COVID. This was before COVID. Um, uh, God already was impressing upon our hearts uh, as a church planning team of what the church is about and how do we simplify this? How do we get the basic essence of the church in a way that first-generation Christians will understand and will become excited about. But I believe that it is uh, equally encouraging uh, for us today as we think about the church. I know a lot of questions have risen over the last year concerning the church. And there may be questions in your mind still about the church and and why it is so significant and why it is so important and what do we do in the church and how do we function within the church and what are the non-negotiables of the church. My goal this morning isn't to add anything to that. My goal this morning is to encourage you with what you already know and to encourage you to pray for those who are still wrestling with these issues in some of these questions. I will be honest with you, I have shied away from this text for my whole life until three years ago. There are a few texts that are very difficult in Scripture, and as a pastor, we come trembling before these texts. We do not want to misrepresent uh, God, and we don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth. I, I say it so many times as a missionary when I'm witnessing two people I tell them that my greatest fear would be to put words in God's mouth. And because of that, I stick to the word of God and I I do my best to explain that which is here so that they and you can see what is written here for yourself. I know there are many churches that say so many things and many pastors who say things that don't come from God. And that is tragic. So this morning... We'll look at one verse, but I want to take in the context here, and so I will read Matthew 16, 13 to 20, but I want to start with, but I want to focus on verse uh, 18, but let's start with uh, verse 13, and this is what the Word of God says. Matthew 16, starting verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who Do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so Simon Peter replied, he said, you are the Christ, the the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth you shall be bound in heaven and whoops, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let me add verse 21 as well. And from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Before we go any further, let me pray and ask God to bless the study of his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have truth. We have your word. We don't need to make anything up. We don't need to rely on stories or experiences that we have had, but we can come to scripture and we can learn from scripture. And we also acknowledge, O God, that this is not a magical book. It is not a mystical book. We aren't digging down for secret truths that no one knows except for some higher authority within a church structure. God, this book becomes alive through the work of your Spirit, as your Spirit teaches us and impresses your truth upon our hearts. And so, God, we ask that your Spirit would do his work this morning, convicting those who need to be convicted of sin, encouraging those who need to be encouraged with the truth, and comforting those who are in suffering. And so, God, we humble ourselves and we put ourselves below the authority of Scripture because it is your word, and in doing so, we put ourselves at your feet this morning. And we ask that you teach us, that you instruct us, all for your glory and the building up of your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The phrase we will focus on, and and I will read it right now in Matthew 16, 18, the phrase that is very familiar, it says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I would like to highlight each word in that phrase as we go through the phrase, and we will bring the context to bear on the meaning of this phrase. I would also like to keep it very simple. Keep it in just four words, four words that I think you can tuck away and you can remember so that every time you read this text, these four words come to mind. And every time you are in church and you are thinking about the church, these four words can come to mind. So the first word is builder. Who is the builder of the church? The church's builder. We highlight the first word of this phrase, I will build my church, I will. Will build my church. Who is the builder? This isn't anything new for us. The text makes it very clear. Jesus is the one speaking. He is the one who answers Peter. And so when he says, I will build my church, it is Jesus Christ himself. He is the builder of the church. It is unbelievable how many times I've heard phrases of pastors saying, well, I'm just going to put a church over there. Or I'm going to put a church in that city. We don't put churches anywhere. (laughs) Christ establishes churches where he wants, and he uses us as his servants. Christ is the builder, and so it is important that we know who is Christ, and that is a significant part of this text. Within the immediate context, Jesus is the one who initiates this conversation. From start to finish, this text is about Jesus Christ. And so he begins this conversation in a crucial moment in the life of, of the discipleship of his, his followers, of the disciples, and he is beginning to, to transition, and he's going to start focus more intently on them. And, and he begins this by asking them who they say the Son of Man is. Now there's some options put forward. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets... But then Jesus narrows the focus, and he says, but who do you? I don't want to know what's out there. I want to know where you guys are at. I'm going to be working with you guys. You will be the future foundation of the church. I want to work with you. Where are you at with this? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's the good spokesperson, he speaks up here, and he says. And the most clearest statement, the most concise statement in Scripture of the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's right here. Peter replied in verse 16 You are the Christ the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one by God, the one who will fulfill God's purpose of redemption. You are the one chosen all the way from the Old Testament working up. This is the culmination. Christ is the culmination of those Old Testament prophecies, of those Old Testament images. Everything is leading up to understand that he is the Christ. He's the one chosen by God the Father to bring salvation and redemption. But he's not mere man. He's the Son of the Living God, the one true God. He is divine. He is 100% man, 100% God. And because of that, he is the chosen vessel by God the Father to save sinners like you and I. Peter understands this. This isn't because he's extra smart, it isn't because he went to seminary. In fact, all he was was a fisherman. This came by divine revelation. Jesus says that to him in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God chose in his grace and mercy to reveal this truth to Peter so that he would be the one to say who Jesus Christ is. But we also know that it's important within this context and as this develops within the Gospels and later on in the book of Acts, there's another important aspect of who Jesus is and that is that he is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of the church. If we go a little bit further in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we are at the end of the parable in verse 42. And Jesus himself will give an explanation here of this parable. And he will say to the, the masters of the law, to the religious leaders, verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures? I find it unbelievable how many times Jesus will say these to the people who should be most literate in the word of God. It's like you going up to Pastor Steve and say, Pastor Steve, have you not read this? I mean, he spends every day reading this. Jesus calls him out and says, have you never read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And a little later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Peter himself will make it explicitly clear who the cornerstone is. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Peter, in the sermon, says this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in none other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Without a doubt, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the most important person in world this new entity that will be established called the church. But for now, I just want to focus on the aspect that he is the builder. Jesus Christ is the builder. He establishes the church, and he is the one who builds the church. The church exists because of Jesus, and it exists for Jesus, and so we must keep Jesus front and center. I think it is tragic how many churches have gotten into so many things that they lose sight of the very builder of the church, Jesus Christ himself. I don't know about your city here, but in our city of Sapidunga. as I go up and down streets, there are many churches, and just by the signs outside of the church, I can tell what's going on. There is the church, there is the service for family, there is the Holy Spirit service, There is the casting out demon service. There is the blessing and prosperity service. There is the get wealthy service. There is the healing service. And I come and I say, where is the Jesus Christ service? Like, how did we get past him? How did all these other things become so much more important that we've lost sight of the very focus of the church, which is Jesus Christ? I praise the Lord that here it is evident from start to finish that Jesus Christ is front and center. But we must keep it simple. We must keep it simple. The church exists because of Jesus. The church exists for Jesus. He is the builder, and so we keep him front and center. I'm sure you still have the same verse here, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Is that right? We proclaim whom? Christ. That's our verse too. That's on our wall. And it's so deeply ingrained, it's our Wi-Fi password. So if you guys ever come, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, reference, Wi-Fi password. Keep Jesus Christ front and center. Now, Jesus could have easily started the church as part of his personal, earthly ministry before returning to heaven. He could have been the one to give that very first sermon in Acts chapter 2 that gave birth to the church. He could have done that. But he didn't. Think about that. The very God-man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the promised Christ, the King, the greatest teacher that anyone had ever known or heard... Decides to say here you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Matthew 16:18 and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. This is the second word beginning The beginning of the church, the church's beginning. The next two words, will build. I will build my church. Will build is emphasizing the beginning. Jesus is introducing something new here. It is a new institution centered upon himself, my church, that will take place sometime after he spoke these words, will build. The church didn't start back with Abraham. It didn't start in the Old Testament. The church starts in Acts chapter two. And this text is very significant because Jesus himself is introducing a new concept that looks forward and he says, I will build it in a future moment from when he speaks these words and it will be centered upon myself because it is my church. I believe the focus here is on The beginning of the church. This is a crucial moment in the ministry of Jesus here on earth. And he will devote more time and attention to preparing the disciples for what comes next. Like I said, they will be the foundation of the church. And so we, now having the full revelation of scripture in our hands... We know from Ephesians 2, 19 and 22 that the church is on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And so at this moment, Jesus is talking to Peter and Jesus is explaining something new that will happen. There are two things that are clear. He is talking to Peter and secondly, he delegates to Peter a certain level of authority and importance In the beginning of the church. Now, at the same time, there are two significant events that immediately limit and clearly establish these limits of Peter's authority and importance in case it goes to his head right away, which might or might not have happened. (laughs) What's the first example? Right here, immediately in this context, we quickly understand that Peter does not have more authority than Jesus. Matthew sixteen twenty three makes that very clear. When Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a pretty clear signal that you've overstepped your bounds. So Peter is no pope with no authority equal to or greater than Jesus Christ. Let's make that very clear. The immediate context leaves that clear. The second incident happens a little bit further when they're in the upper room. And this one clearly shows that Jesus is, that Peter is not greater than the other disciples. He's not more significant and he doesn't have this primacy over his colleagues in this sense. In the upper room, moments before Jesus' trial and death, we learn quite painfully that he's not more important. Peter answers Jesus and says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He, he, he clearly separates himself from the rest of the disciples and tries to put himself on a higher level. And Jesus has nothing of it. And he says, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You're not all that stuff. So what does this have to do with the beginning of the church? As the scriptures unfold, it becomes obvious that Peter plays a fundamental, foundational role in the beginning of the church. Peter preaches the sermon that gives birth to the church in Acts chapter 2. He's the key person in the expansion of the church to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. I believe Jesus is very intentional as he is speaking to Peter here in Matthew sixteen eighteen. Jesus, the most important person in this passage and the most important person in the church itself, he still chooses to use someone for the building of the church. He chooses to use Peter. And the big question is why? Why Peter? Is there something inherently special in Peter? Well, we already saw there isn't. It was divine revelation that he received that allowed him to make the declaration of who Jesus is. We know that he's a foot in the mouth, Peter. Right? You just have to read the Gospels. I mean, he's not your prime candidate. I think as we answer those questions, it helps us maybe unpack a little bit about what the rock is in this text. That on this rock, I will build my church. I make it very clear, Peter himself is not the rock. But I would say that that which Peter believes through divine revelation and him who Peter now proclaims through divine commission, then that is the rock. The church will be built upon those who, like Peter, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and who then proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, having been commissioned and sent out by Jesus Christ himself. So who does Jesus choose to use to build his church? I believe the same way that the church began is the same way that the church will continue to grow and be built up. We can't lose sight of the beginning. We can't lose sight of that which was important and significant at the beginning. If we lose sight of that, then we begin to create our own things, and we diverge ourselves from that which Jesus himself established. So who does Jesus choose to use to build his church? Jesus chooses to use people like Peter, a sinful man saved by the supernatural gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter, a simple man who proclaimed a supernatural gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if God can use Peter, then that's good news for us, is it not? God wants to use you and me, those who have believed in Jesus Christ and those who proclaim Christ, to carry on the mission that Christ started and to build up the church upon which he is the cornerstone and the founder and the builder. So if we're going to keep it simple, we must remember that the church grows when the gospel of Jesus Christ is believed and proclaimed. So we must keep the gospel front and center. We must keep the gospel front and center. And the gospel is quite simple. The gospel is quite clear. We don't need to embellish it. We don't need to come up with fancy things for it. It starts with God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. God is the creator of everything. And you and I, we're, we're not holy. We're sinful. We're sinful. And our sin has separated us from this holy God. And so we must repent of our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. We must believe that he died and rose again on our behalf. And if we believe in him, we will be saved. We will be saved. You know, sometimes what gets in the way is our own fear. And usually it's our fear to mention sin or to call out sin or to call people to repentance. But you don't need a savior if you don't understand that you're sinful. So you can't leave that out. That is an essential element of the gospel. And I'm encouraged by the example of Peter himself when he preaches that first sermon in Acts chapter 2. He comes to the end of that and he says, I want all the house of Israel therefore to know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now think about that. Put that into context. Not too many days have passed since Jesus' crucifixion in this sermon in Acts chapter 2. When Paul says, you crucified, who's he talking to? The people who either passively or actively crucify Jesus. You want to call out sin? (laughs) That is an ambitious calling out of sin. God has called us to proclaim the gospel with clarity. We must do so because it is as the gospel of Jesus Christ As it is proclaimed, that's how God ordained for people to be saved. This is the means that Jesus chose to bring life out of death, to bring light out of darkness, and to make a family out of complete strangers. And so the result of this is what? The church. The church. This is a new reality. It's being in Christ. This is now what defines this community that surrounds Christ. It's the Christian bond. It's the fellowship. And so I want you guys to get this third word. It's bond. I will build my church. Emphasizing the next two words, my church. This is the bond. This is essential. This is why Christ saved us. He called us out of darkness and he brought us together in Christ, to have fellowship that no one else can understand. Something unique to the church, unique to Christianity, the bond. So who does Jesus call to be part of his church? The church is the gathering of those who have been called out of darkness into light. The phrase, my church, church here, ecclesia, I know we've heard lots about it. But just reminding ourselves at this point, there is no denominations. There is no buildings. This is focusing on a gathering. Those who have been called out and united for one purpose. And that's what the church is. This is the gathering of those who have been called out of darkness and called into his marvelous light. Peter says that in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. That's what the church is. When we lose sight of that, we lose sight of our identity and we lose sight of that which unites us. Or the called out ones. And then the church is the gathering of those who belong to Jesus Christ. My church, we belong to Christ. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our savior. And so as we gather together, we have this in common. We have all been called out of darkness into light, and we have all been put under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is our master, and we do everything to honor and praise and glorify him. And so the church gathers to express this amazing bond that we have in Christ. It gets tragic to have people who profess Christ as Savior and don't understand or value the local church. It's far from Jesus' original plan here. The very reason you were called out was that you could be part of something, not to be an island to yourself. And so it is essential that we have this fellowship. And so we must keep this bond. We must keep this importance of true Christian fellowship front and center. We can't lose that. I know this was challenged throughout the the last year and it continues to be challenged. But this is one of the essential aspects that is right from the start. As Jesus introduces the concept of the church, the meaning of church itself is that we come together because we have this in common. I know over the past year, I've tried a little bit of everything, and I'm sure you guys have done different things too. I had virtual afternoon coffee and tea, not the most exciting thing, not very delicious. And I've preached to a camera a few times. But can I just say this? Nothing compares to the gathering of God's people in order to tangibly express the bond we have in Christ. Nothing. Amen to that? And I believe that the greatest expression of this bond will take place in heaven, will it not? When we'll be united forever and we will not have any hindrance of sin. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to virtual heaven. (laughs) Anyone want to go to virtual heaven here? No. Because the bond isn't just virtual. So let me put it this way. I say this to emphasize that our heart's greatest desire and goal should be together. And I know I'm, pe- I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but our heart's greatest desire and goal should be together. So may we never let our hearts settle to the point of being comfortable with anything less. I understand that there will be periods of time where we will be uncomfortable. And we will not be able to do what our heart's greatest desire and expression is. But our heart will always continue to long for that which is best. Now, as I said, Jesus brought us together. That's the church. That's the bond. And he brought us together for a purpose. We have a very clear purpose that Christ himself has given to us. We are not a mob that's someone with no purpose. Okay? And we're not a social club which is just to hang out. God's given us a very clear purpose. The end of the phrase says and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The last word is battle. Battle. At the very least, we must acknowledge that this terminology emphasizes a spiritual battle, a war that is going on surrounding the church. There is a battle taking place because if the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, then implicitly the church has a mission here. Now before I get into the details of what this means, I would like to go from the general to the specific with you. So at a very general, most basic level, I want to show that the battle is a spiritual battle, is an intense spiritual battle, and the church is called to deal with very heavy spiritual matters. At the very least, we must acknowledge that the church is involved in very significant issues that reach into the realms of heaven and down into the depths of hell itself. I want us to feel the weight of what the church is engaged in as those who have been called out of the light into the darkness. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, I believe the disciples have witnessed and seen the intense nature of this spiritual battle. And so as we come to this text and we take into consideration everything that they have seen, where they have been, the miracles that Jesus has displayed, the oppression going on, and I think that the, the demonic activity was in overdrive with the presence of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ steps foot on the earth, then Satan goes into overdrive and we see how much is happening during the life of Christ. And it seems to be unprecedented with any other time in history. So I can't help but think that the disciples are acutely aware of this reality. It is on their minds as Jesus speaks of the church. He introduces this concept, and I believe it would be a comfort to them as they have witnessed this oppression. It would be a comfort to them to know that as they continue this mission that Jesus Christ started and as they engage the enemy in the truth, and they, and they confront the lies with the truth, and they confront the darkness with the light, and they confront death with life itself, they will be comforted in knowing that they will have victory in Jesus Christ. Those are some pretty big shoes that they will need to fill in the near future. And I think this will be a comfort to them. So back to the broad understanding The church is engaged in a spiritual battle, and this is heavy matters. Let me walk through a few texts with you. The church is involved in things of eternal consequence. Let's start right here in the immediate context. After Jesus makes his declaration in verse 18, he continues on in verse 19, talking with Peter, and he says, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I know there is a lot that can be said about this, and I don't want to have a long theological debate on this, okay? So I will just give you my understanding of what this means. And that is, in this particular context, Peter is uh, receiving from Jesus Christ the delegated or derived authority upon which he will make judgment on things of eternal consequence. Peter in himself does not have authority, but he has this delegated authority from Christ by means of his word to look at a situation or to look at a person and help them understand where they stand in the balance of death and life and the balance of eternity and hell. If we go on a little further... In Matthew 18, and when we get to the text on church discipline, Matthew eighteen eighteen, 18, um, after this process of church discipline, the same terminology is used again, and I believe this now is in reference to the church leadership or the church as a whole. And so that which Jesus spoke to Peter now is being uh, spoken in terms of the church. And I believe the church also has been given this heavy, weighty responsibility That is derived from Jesus Christ. The authority comes from Christ and his word to look at a situation, to look at people and tell them where they stand in terms of eternity. To pass judgment in that sense. These are heavy matters. As we go on to the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 5, follow along with me now Acts chapter 5. We go from when Jesus talks about church discipline to the first example of church discipline, and it's pretty extreme in Acts chapter 5. We don't practice it in this way anymore, for for a good reason, right? But in Acts chapter 5, we have the example of Ananias and Sapphira, and they choose to give some of the the, the money that they, they got from the sale of their land, and but they lied about it, and they lied to the Holy Spirit about it, and so Peter... Uh, is going to say some really strong things to them. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, this is what Peter then says. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Is that heavy? It's not every day that you say something like this, right? Darren, Satan has, you know, you say that. But does Peter know what he's saying here? Has this possibly happened to Peter before? Yeah, I, I, like he knows what he's saying, right? Because Jesus said it to him. So, so he understands the weight of this. This is weighty matters. Why does he have the authority to say something like this? I think it's believe, because Jesus has called him and called us to make very serious statements that have to do with eternity. And in this case, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They're church-disciplined, not only out of the church, but out of this world. They're killed. Very significant, how it starts. Move on to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, in verse 20, we have uh, some conversions taking place, and, and they call Peter and John. And so here we have Peter speaking once again. And there's a guy named Simon who... Uh, becomes very impressed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he thinks that he can buy them with money and that he can manipulate the divine through his own natural human resources. And so what does Peter say to him? May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner for your heart is not right before God. Is that serious? He's saying this person has no law and no right and no part with what God is doing. Those are some serious, weighty statements. If we move on into the epistles, and there's tons of examples, but let me just do two more. Galatians chapter 1. Now it's the apostle Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, and he says it a few times actually, but Paul is very strong here. Galatians 1, 9, he says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be what? A curse, anathema, lay, let, let him burn forever in hell. Is that heavy or not? These are heavy, heavy matters. Things that, Jesus Christ has called his church to engage in. The last one would be Ephesians chapter 6, a text very well known. Ephesians chapter 6, we come to the end of the book, and Paul exhorts the Christians, the believers, to stand firm in the Lord. He emphasizes the spiritual battle that is taking place upon which the church is engaged And he says in verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." We know this, but I think we need to be reminded and confronted with the very serious nature of what the church has been called to do. The church is on a mission, and we are engaged in warfare, and this warfare is not a trivial matter. And so we can't take it lightly. The church has been called to engage in a battle. Now well, Let's go back to Matthew 16, 18 and let me go from the general of spiritual warfare, heavy matters battle to the specifics now of the gates of Hades or hell or death. So I believe first the, as a church we must understand the serious nature of the battle in which we are engaged in. And secondly, we must find comfort in the sufficiency of Christ's promise to the church. And that's the specific aspect that I want to show here in the text. It says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me ask just a question. When was the last time you were attacked by a gate? and you Anyone attacked by, you know, watch out, here comes the gates, watch out, watch out. Now, ga- gates are defensive, right? We agree on that. Gates are defensive. Gates are to keep things out, keep people out, keep stuff out. They are a, a defensive weapon. And here we, we have this <laughs> this tension between gates and prevailing or overpowering or overcoming. and And I want to be careful to show that Prevailing or overpowering or overcoming doesn't overpower the gates to the point that the gates can't be defensive still. I think there's a way that you can be defensive and still overpower and still be victorious when the defense wins. If I could use an illustration, there was a time about a year ago when I got to our church building, and I was with a friend, and the front of our church has a gate. It's a gate that rolls up like this, okay? And it's supposed to go all the way up. And so you roll it up, and I went in, and I got some things. I came back to the car, and there, when thunderstorms hit, they hit. I mean, they, like, you know, buckets, buckets come down. And so I just got in the car, and I remembered, like, I had forgotten the key, right? So the the rain just poured down right then. So I ran in to the church. And I discovered that the gate was about this high because I had an encounter with the gate right about here. And can I tell you something that gate prevailed against me? <laughs> and this is for grant, I gave my blood for the church. Uh, have you given your blood for the church yet? Uh, not yet. Yeah, it prevailed against me. It overcame. It overpowered me. Even being defensive and even being motionless, it still overpowered me. Why? Because I was on the offense. Because I was running. Because I was taking the initiative. And if I could be so bold... I believe throughout all of Scripture, God takes the initiative from start to finish. In our salvation, the initiative always comes from God. He loved us first. He sent His Son. He took the initiative from start to finish. It has always been Him on the offensive. We know of other texts in Ephesians 2 where it talks about The prince of the power of the air and being held captive. Texts in 1 Corinthians of being blinded. Or in 1 John where it says that Jesus came to loose, to set us free. So what are the implications here? I believe that the church has been called to be on the offense here and the battle is located at the gates of hell or death itself. If I could be so clear as to say the church has been called to declare war on death. And I think the irony of the days in which we live is that I think the world tried to declare war on death. And quite frankly, there's a huge sense of impotence And frustration, is there not? But here's the thing for us, not so for the church, because Jesus promises the church's success, because he himself takes the initiative. He took the initiative. He went to the cross. He defeated sin and death. And then he said, come and do likewise. Go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I have been sent from the Father, so I send you the end of the gospel of John. I believe this is what is on Jesus' mind because in the immediate context, as you go on to verse 21, it says, From that time, there's a shift taking place, and from that time, what is Jesus' focus? Where is he going? What is he going to do? He's going to storm the gates of hell itself says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We have the promise of assurance of victory because Jesus already did it. Jesus has gone before us. He took the initiative. He went to the cross and he has set the pattern for us. We must follow in his steps. So we must go into the realm of darkness to bring light. We must go into the territory of death to bring life. That is our mission. That is our calling. That is why we are here. So if we were to keep it simple, it's this. The church battles the realm of Satan, sin, and death in order to bring new life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we keep strategic, aggressive, intentional evangelism front and center. Let me put it this way. The final part of this verse isn't really needed if you aren't engaged in the battle. Why would you need to be comforted if the gates of hell and death don't threaten you, aren't even in sight? How do you storm gates you don't come in contact with? And I was challenged with this as I think about the local church. Could it be that many churches have become cruise liners instead of aircraft carriers? Could it be? There's nothing wrong with the cruise liner. I've actually used the cruise liner as an illustration in a sermon of our all-inclusiveness in Christ, that it's a package deal that once you accept Christ, you get everything. But the purpose of the Christian life isn't just the cruise liner. I think as a church, we've been called to be an aircraft carrier where we are training up and sending out people locally and globally. Globally to invade the realm of darkness to bring the light of Jesus Christ. Or could it be that many churches are fortresses protecting their own gates instead of military outposts advancing upon the enemy gates? Now understand that when we attack and we see this throughout Scripture, the enemy does not stand still. He doesn't just sit back, relax, and watch his kingdom be attacked and destroyed he fights he fights back and I encourage my people that when we have the sad stories when we have the people who make professions of faith and then walk away or we have people who have been lying to our face about things that we were helping them with and they were turning around and using it and selling it and buying drugs and we get disheartened and I look at them and I say this confirms that we're in the battle And we can't give up because we have the end in sight, we have the big picture, we have the long-term in sight, and that is that Jesus conquered the grave. And Jesus will save. So I understand we need defense as well. But over the last three years, I personally have been confronted with my need to engage in the battle with strategic, aggressive, intentional evangelism. If I could finish with just one testimony from the life of the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 26, you can turn there with me. We're at the end of uh, Paul's ministry. He is making his defense before the most important people of his day, And I love that his defense always includes the gospel and his salvation. But what stands out to me in this final defense here and in his words and what he believes God has called him to do, it's just amazing. And, And I hadn't paid attention to it. I hadn't noticed it in light of the spiritual battle upon which we are engaged in. So in Acts chapter 26, verse 15, Peter is having this interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ at his moment of conversion, and he says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord Jesus answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am now what? Sending you. I love it deliver you from the very people I'm sending you to. And what is he to do? What is his mission? Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Have you ever thought of it in those words? I can't believe he said this to the most powerful people. My job is to turn you from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. (laughs) Have you ever thought of your mission in these terms? Your calling in these terms? The implication is they're already in the power of Satan and we've been called to help transfer them through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it'll say how, right? That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Repentance and faith, right? And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, Jesus Christ. What's a place sanctified by Jesus Christ? What what is that? A place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. What do we call that? It's one word and it's the title of the sermon. (laughs) The church. The church. That's our mission. So clearly stated. We've been sent out to help transfer people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God himself. And how do we do that? Through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't stop there. I love it. As you pay attention in scripture, it never stops there. So that then they can have a place in the church. I know I'm suspect, I'm a church planner, but I love the church. And from start to finish, if you pay attention, all these little places, it makes it so clear that the commitment to the local church is essential. It's part of the package. It's what God's called us to do and to be a part of. Let me close in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mission that he has given to us as the church. It really is an impossible mission. And I think that just magnifies the privilege we have to partake in it. Because as we do what you have called us to do, you do the work. You build the church. You bring us together in beautiful bond, and you guarantee success in the battle. From start to finish, it's about you, and so we give you all the glory. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and the coming King. Amen.